So for some of you in here, I was born in the 1900s. I've heard that a few times now. You were born way back in the 1900s. And I, I actually remember vividly re, as, as a kid uh, meeting a, a few people that were born in the 1800s. Uh, and uh, any, anyone remember people that they, they met that were born in the 1800s? Yeah, yeah. And uh, so those of you who uh, are speaking of us that were born in the 1900s, as uh, people of a bygone age, just remember us. That's all we ask. So, but the reason I bring that up is back in the 1900s, there was this thing called the Thomas Guide. <laughs> Anyone remember the Thomas Guide? Okay, yeah, yeah, there's some people. Now, there's people up front that are like, I have no idea at all what you're talking about. So when we drive around today, we notice people that are totally distracted by their little phones, right? And they're talking on their phone, they're looking at the maps on their phones, and that's kind of key to all of this. Because there was this thing, so I, I grew up in Phoenix, came out here for college, and Phoenix was pretty easy to navigate. It was all in one-mile grids and all of that type of stuff. If you lived on 17th Street, you knew that that was not 17th Avenue, it was 17th Street, and you went over east of, east of Central. You didn't need a map to get around in Phoenix. And I came to college here, and this place made no sense at all. It was just just roads and stuff everywhere. And everyone was like, hey, you need to get this, this Thomas Guide. You need to get a Thomas Guide. So I went to, you know, a bookstore. Do you guys know what that is? Anyway. <laughs> and so there was a bookstore that you would go buy these things at because there wasn't the internet yet, so you couldn't order it from Amazon. That was someone's thought that was two years old at the time. And so you go get this Thomas Guide, and this thing was thick. I mean, it was like big. And you would drive around looking at your Thomas Guide. So if you thought distraction was bad now, you would drive around and you would see people, especially those that were delivery people and different stuff like that, they would have their Thomas Guide on their steering wheel. You remember this? So they're flipping pages, looking at this map on this Thomas Guide, and then they would go from Orange County to L.A. County. And you know what that meant? They had to take the other book out. It was volumes. You would have three volumes of Thomas Guides, at least, in your car. You had the Orange County, you had L.A. County, and then if whatever other county that you, you went to, you had to have those, and you're taking them out, and you're flipping around, you're G7. It wasn't Battleship. It was, this is how you did this. And you would sit there, and you'd try to figure out where to drive and all of that, and it was absolutely crazy. And I was a guy, like, I had to get one of those because I cannot stand not knowing where I'm going. I am, I am a person, I, I want to know exactly where, and my wife's laughing back there right now. And, and I, I just do, I, I want to know where I'm going. I, I want to have the maps all done. If we went to the state of Washington on a trip that I'd been on seven times, I still went to AAA and got this other thing that doesn't exist anymore called a triptych. And it was, it was different than the Thomas guy because instead of going like this, it would flip like this because AAA was way cooler. And, and so you would follow that. Even though I knew everywhere I was going, I wanted to know where I was going. There are many people that live their life like that in everything, right? Won't make a move 
unless it's, it, I, I know where it's going, I know what this is going to do, I know what this is about. Well, I want to share with you the Christian life in six words. And it's from two sections of scripture before we dive into Isaiah here. And you'll understand where I'm going with this in a minute. So Hebrews 11.8, if you want to jump over there in the New Testament, Hebrews 11.8 is one section that we're going to be looking at. And then 2 Timothy 1.12. Hebrews 11.8, 2 Timothy 1.12. And I'm going to combine key words out of these two these two sections of scripture to get six words about the Christian life. So Hebrews 11.8 says this, By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. Did you catch that? Not knowing where he was going. Jump over to 2 Timothy 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. It says this, For this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Hebrews 11.8, three words out of that really important section of scripture. Not knowing where. You write that down. Not knowing where. 2 Timothy 1.12, Paul says, I know whom. Not knowing where, I know whom. Abraham didn't know where God was leading him. But he didn't need to know where. Like Paul in 2 Timothy, he knew whom he had believed. And so it should be with us. We don't know where, but we know whom. And that should be enough. If you always must know where and what and when and how, all in advance, before you obey God, then you are not living by faith in God. Living by faith in God accepts uncertainty. It accepts uncertainty without getting nervous. Why? Because God is in charge. Not knowing where, I know whom. That's our Christian walk. Not knowing where, I know whom. And that is what Isaiah is saying in chapter 36 and part of 37. In whom do you trust? In, in whom do you trust? You see, we all, we all live on the cutting edge of faith. Either faith in God or faith in something else. You probably didn't see that coming. We all, everyone, people in this room, people in this world, 
either faith in God or faith in something else. And yesterday's faith in God belongs to yesterday. In whom do you now trust today? In the struggle that you're facing now, in whom do you trust? Not knowing where, but I know whom. We can come predictably to these moments in life when nothing will suffice but what is directly and immediately from God. There's just those moments, aren't there? I can try to plan everything out, but there are those moments where this just needs to come directly and immediately from God. After we've done all that we can and should do, and life's demands are even demanding more from us, we have to understand that nothing but God himself will suffice. Whatever your challenge is right now, everyone, God is with you in that. Trust him. Look for him. He will not fail you. We need to keep our heads up because other forces cloud our vision of God, complicate our thinking, pressure us not to take him at his word, but to kind of shave off this radical edge of faith that we're supposed to have. There always seems to be some voice whispering to us that God is not a resource, that God is the problem. So the question before us is profound, it's urgent, it's today, it's, it's now. Whose voice will you believe? Whose wisdom will you follow? Whose hope will you cherish and live for? In whom do you trust now? Because right now, as one author said, two worlds exist simultaneously. And those two words, worlds, I'm sorry, those two worlds are unblendable, but also inseparable. That's what we live, and that's the tension we live in in this world, right? Unblendable, but also inseparable. This world dominated by man and man's thinking and secular humanism that see all around us and then you have the world of the creator that we are called to live in and be a part of the eternal world the two worlds are in conflict aren't they everyone everyone is caught up in this spiritual tension whether they know it or not this present age keeps telling us that life is this life life now is our only chance for happiness. That human power is the only power that count, counts, uh, that we can bank on only human power and what we see right now in front of us. But that way of thinking ruins people. It kills our sense of a higher purpose and an understanding of God. It, it quenches the Holy Spirit. It reduces us to actually living a mediocre type of life. It's a world that has an appearance of wisdom, 
but is always going to let you down. As a Christian, though, you understand as a Christian there's another way to live. And there is a power that we're drawing from that's not from this world. And we call it living by faith. And what do we mean by that? We mean living as if God really exists. Really rewards those who seek after Him. What we mean is living by God's promises as as the bedrock under our faith while everything else is shifting sand. And sometimes, as Christians, we kind of have vague ideas about how this is all going to work out. Sometimes Christians live by just creeds rather than a daring faith. And Isaiah is talking about a bold faith the world cannot understand. And I think that's key for our understanding of this section of Scripture, this narrative of what's going on here. Isaiah is talking about a bold faith the world cannot understand. A creedal faith says, I believe in God the Father, and goes on from there. That's good. And if we don't believe that, we're really in trouble. But that's just a beginning point, right? That's just a synopsis of us putting in line a a systematic theology, really, of what's going on in our life. But that is not the end all of our Christian walk. In a book called Between Two Worlds, it says this, the the verbs to know and believe and be persuaded are sprinkled all throughout the New Testament. Faith and confidence are regarded as the norms of Christian experience, not as exceptions. God is calling us to live by a daring faith because the world is daring us to live without God. And what Isaiah is going to be showing us here is that human skepticism is is throwing down the gauntlet before us as believers and saying, why believe in God? Why? Why? And as Daniel mentioned, this is an interesting section of the book of Isaiah. These chapters are framed in a historical narrative in chapter 36 through 39 before we jump into the second half of the book. And these, these historical chapters are a bridge between these sections And what we're reading here today, and I encourage you when Daniel comes up in just a second to read this to us, it's really kind of like a a, a two-act play today with some scenes in there. And it's, it's Isaiah giving us the dramatization of human events. And so that's why our outline is Act 1, Act 2, scenes in each one. You see, 
every day we're acting out our beliefs, aren't we? Every day. Whatever they may be. And Isaiah is calling us to live out a daring faith in God, in God whatever the opposition may be. And he's been urging us in chapters 28 through 35 to trust God. Now in 36 through 39, he answers an objection. Does faith work? That's the question, that's the objection. You know how people throw an objection to you in a question? All right, so does that really work? Is that really working for you? Is this faith just some sort of something that keeps you going till Christ returns? Is, is faith in God a smart policy in real life? Does, does God intervene in our experience? These are all questions that are answered here. Is God the king of this world we live in today? And the answer to all of that is yes, God is with us now. We have a reason to stand up. We have a reason to be bold in our faith in God. In fact, we don't need to have a reason. He expects us to. He expects us to. So let's dive into Act 1, the ultimatum that we see here now. And Daniel's going to read chapter 36, verses 1 through 21. And I want you just to picture what's going on as he reads. Now, in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and seized them. And the king of Assyria sent Rabshakeh from Lachish to Jerusalem to King Hezekiah with a large army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway of the fuller's field. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came out to him. Then Rabshakeh said to them, Say now to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, What is this confidence that you have? I say your counsel and strength for the war are only empty words. Now, on whom do you rely that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you rely on the staff of this crushed reed, even on Egypt, on which if a man leans, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who rely on him. But if you say to me, we trust in Yahweh, our God, it, is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away and has said to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? Now, therefore, come make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria, and I will give you 2,000 horses, if you are able on your part to set riders upon them. How then can you repulse <coughs> one official of the least of my master's servants and rely on Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Have I now come up without Yahweh's approval against this land to destroy it? Yahweh said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. Then Eliakim and Shebna and Joah said to Rabshakeh, Speak now to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. And do not speak with us in Judean in the hearing of the people who are on the wall. 
But Rabshakeh said, Has my master sent me only to your master and to you to speak these words? And not to the men who sit on the wall, doomed to eat their own dung and drink their own urine with you? Then Rabshakeh stood and cried with a loud voice in Judean and said, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you, nor let Hezekiah make you trust in Yahweh, saying, Yahweh will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, Make your peace with me. And come out to me and each eat of his vine and each of his fig tree and drink of the waters of his own cistern. Until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Beware that Hezekiah does not mislead you, saying the Lord will deliver us. Has any one of the gods of the nations delivered his land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sevarphaim? And when have they delivered Samaria from my hand? Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their land from my hand that Yahweh would deliver Jerusalem from my hand? But they were silent and answered him not a word. For the king's commandment was, do not answer him. The army is swarming over Judah like a, I kind of picture just this, this horde of swarm of red fire ants. Just swarming towards them. And only Jerusalem remains and when we see here in verses 1 and 2, this, this upper pool, the highway to the washer's field, and, and that, that location should have a familiar ring to it. We have seen it before. It takes us back to an earlier episode in Isaiah's prophecy where it says to go out to meet Ahaz, you and, and your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool of the highway of the washer's field. This is a second time that this has happened. 34 years earlier, Isaiah had met King Ahaz, the father of King Hezekiah, at the same place, at another moment when faith was being tested. Same place, same crisis. And Ahaz, in his day, decided not to trust in God. And his unbelief, you know what, that didn't make God go away. It intensified the crisis. And it was that much more intense when it resurfaced. And now God is visiting his people again with the question that always lies before us, in whom do you trust? And obviously, Rabshakeh, and that could be seen as one person or a group, didn't intend to frame this idea of these questions as being really helpful. It's a psychological warfare that's going on. But in this speech that Daniel just read to us in verses 4 through 10, this word trust is used seven times. It's a, it's a key word. The 
word means to throw oneself down on one's face, to lie extended on the ground. This word trust. So the picture that we need to put in our mind is that trust is a deep and complete and entire dependency. You're throwing yourself on the ground. And the Rabshakeh asks that question, do you think mere words are this power for war? These mere words stand in contrast to this great army. You know, he's basically going, is, 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 is Hezekiah so crazy as to confront a great army with mere words? And that really takes us to the heart of the matter that we see in these verses. Is the gospel a safe place to take your stand amid the brutal realities of the world? Right? Is the gospel a safe place to take your stand amid the brutal realities of this world? Are God's promises... Are God's strategy and power for war, His word, are they powerful or are they mere words? Our society would like us to think that the secrets to life are financial, right? That's a secret to happiness, financial, health, being smart, educated, accepted in the right circles, degrees from the right schools, good looks, all these mechanisms for self-enhancement and empowerment. Do we rely on those, or, or is God our strong ally? What happens, everyone, when the human props of our world are kicked out from under us? Do you have anything left to stand on? And that is the question. And the answer depends on who God is for you. The Bible says, God, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist in Romans 4.17. If that is who God is, we can turn to Rabshakeh's question and turn it right around. We can say, do you think that mere human empowerment in your armies without God is a realistic strategy for a challenge in life? And that answer depends on whose God's rivals are. Uh, the king of Assyria, there in verse 5, your counsel and strength for the war are empty words. Now on whom do you rely? In whom do you now trust? There's an important truth here that I want us to, to catch. Trust and loyalty always go together. Trust and loyalty always go together. 
we obey whoever and whatever we trust. Right? See, trust is so much more than just a creed. It is practical. It stirs up controversy and conflict because we yield to the one we trust. We resist the one we don't trust. The king of Assyria doesn't intend to be helpful. We know that. And he's giving out these arrogant questions. He has such a low view of God and such an inflated view of himself. He can't imagine anyone so brash as to defy him. I can think of some certain people in politics right now that are exactly like that. How dare you not think like I think? You must be a threat to the world. It's, it's the exact same thing playing out over and over again. And he does end up defining the source of a daring Christian rebellion. It's a conviction that God is the best ally. So that, that's defined there. And this boasting Rabshakeh brags on with a mixture of half-truths and, and spin and intimidation. It really, as you read this, it reminds you of Satan being in the garden. It reminds you of Satan being with Jesus and, and taking Scripture and twisting it. And, and that's what he does. And so it's this, these half-truths and these intimidations. And they're, they're always arguments against living by faith in God. And they're very effective. In discussions that I have with people, they're just, you, you sit there and, and people will go, I just don't understand why my fam family member B or, you know, just insert name into these different things. I just don't, they're, they're smart people. I don't understand how they're so gullible with what the world's doing. Right? You just, you're, you just, I just don't get it that, they don't, they don't, you would think they would see through this. That is how powerful Satan's lies are. The half-truths. They are effective. And what happens in this section of Scripture, in, in basically the second scene of it in verses 11 and 12, is just a really kind of a feeble response. The, the officials plead, to stop, to have Rabshakeh stop speaking in Hebrew and to use Aramaic, that was the language of the diplomatic crew at that time. They didn't want the common people to know how bad the situation really was. I was like, well, that kind of sounds familiar too. Now the Assyrian people know that he's got them on the run. He presses his advantage by hinting at the terrible conditions that are going to be there on a full stage. You're going to be eating your own stuff. We'll just stop there. And he's, he's saying, I hope the people of Jerusalem hear this enough. Maybe they'll rise up against their leaders, demand an immediate surrender. 
and, and it's a feeble response, and then, it, then it's kicked up a notch. It's intensified in this challenge. Rabshakeh in verses 13 through 21 turns up the volume of the challenge. And you see a word in there, in those verses, the word deliver, which also occurs seven times there. And that word obviously means to extract, to draw out, to snatch from danger. And what Isaiah wants us to see is how the Rabshakeh parodies God's promises of deliverance. Verse 14, you know, thus says the king. Verse 16, thus says the king of Assyria. The Rabshakeh speaks in the form of a royal decree, but there is another royal decree. Thus says the Lord. There's two kings, two decrees, both offering deliverance. Satan with our Savior. Offering deliverance to Jesus, right? It's the exact same thing. The strategy doesn't change. It doesn't change. You know what a false prophet will always do? A false prophet will always offer false peace. A false prophet is always going to offer a false peace. In verses 13 through 17, you know, basically my paraphrase, you you know what living under a siege is like, but you don't know what it's like to have to eat your own excrement. It's going to get bad. But this can be over so soon, so easily. Just give in. And my king will give you peace and security in your own land. And there's this devilish logic to it. God promised his people security and peace and their own land. What, what did this prophet do? I'm going to give you peace and security in your own land for, for a while. Right? Did you catch what he did and did? And then I'm going to take you somewhere. Did you catch that in there? Yeah, you, you'll eat from your own field and, and, and from your own vineyard for a while. And then you're going to come on a journey with me. And it's going to be awful like what your land is like, but it's not your land. The devil's tactics is to offer what seems a lot like the blessing of God, but it's not. God said, this is your land. This is where your home will be. When he creates the new heaven and the new earth, what happens? Jerusalem will still be home. To his people. The land has always been given. It will never be taken away. But Satan wants to snatch it. And take you somewhere else. 
verses 18 through 21, Rabshakeh mocks the Lord as, a, as another idol. And that really kind of seals his fate. Evil will ultimately always overplay its hand. Human arrogance will always end up blind, blindedly challenging God in a way that appears powerful for a while, but it just doesn't succeed after a while. Because the Lord is not one more idol. And he's not even the greatest of the world's gods. He is God. There is no other. Everything else is fake. And our part is to honor him by trusting him as the true God that he is. And he enters in with real deliverance through our bold faith. And that is where we see then in the start of verse 22 through verse 7 of the next chapter, the promise that is involved. So let's listen to this and read it as Daniel closes out on these simple verses, 22 through 7. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna the scribe, and Joah the son of Asaph the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of Rabshakeh. And when King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, and entered the house of the Lord. Then he sent Eliakim, who was over the household with Shebna the scribe, and the elders of the priests covered with sackcloth to Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amoz. They said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, This is a day of distress rebuke and rejection for children have come to birth and there is no strength to deliver perhaps the lord your god will hear the words of rabshakeh whom his master the king of assyria has sent to reproach the living god and will rebuke the words which the lord your god has heard therefore offer a prayer for the remnant that is left so the servants of king hezekiah came to isaiah and Isaiah said to them, Thus you shall say to your master, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he will hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. It's act two. It's the promise. It's a turning point. It's one of those turning points, actually, in the history of God's people. They're at their very end, surrounded by an overwhelmingly superior force. The enemy is gloating over Jerusalem, saying, Ha-ha! Checkmate! And they're kind of egging them on. Okay, what move are you going to make next? Because whatever move, it doesn't matter. All you got left is God. Good luck on that. Will they try to rescue their pride, negotiate their way out of this? Or for the first time in a long time, will they stop faking and actually go deeper with God? And to Hezekiah's lasting credit, Hezekiah gets real with God, unlike his father Ahaz. He goes into the house of the Lord. He understands 
that what really matters is not his relationship with the king of Assyria, but what really matters is his relationship with the king of heaven. He can see that nothing will suffice but what is directly and immediately of God. His faith is not flippant. It's not a fake, optimistic faith. Why? We know that because what did he do? He tears his clothes. He puts on the sackcloth. He is soberly realistic about what has happened. And it's not about the Assyrians at the front door and the side door and the back door and up on the roof. What was it about? We didn't trust God. And he admits it, right? By himself doing that, I haven't trusted in the Lord. And he turns to God in deep need. Hezekiah is saying, okay, God, I need to hear from you. So he sends for Isaiah with a message that is incredibly honest in verse 3. Hey, this is about a day of distress, of rebuke. This is a king saying, I'm being rebuked, right? you got to understand this. This is a king saying, I am getting thumped. Disgrace. My leadership has been a disgrace. Can you imagine a modern politician saying that? Children have come to the point of death, and there is no strength to bring them forth. Could you imagine just for a moment if all of the media outlets of all of the United States go into a simple podium with the President of the United States saying, this is a day of distress, of rebuke and disgrace because we've blown it and we need to turn back to God. Other than the fact that most of us would probably fall over in shock, that's that's the caliber of what's happening here, everyone. That's the caliber of what's happening here. It's the king getting up saying, I admit it. I failed. I am not living proof of the reality of God in how I've lived my life. I have Produce nothing but exhaustion for my people. We need to be delivered, but we have no strength to do it ourselves. Could you imagine that? The humility that that would take? And so that's the idea that we need to understand with the ripping of the, of the clothes and the, the sackcloth. Hezekiah's first concern actually is the honor of God in the world. He's, he's like, the king of Assyria is mocking God. And we are the reason for it. And Hezekiah's heart is 
breaking for all the right reasons. And then comes God with a word of promise in verses 6 and 7. Do not be afraid. How many times have we heard God say that? A lot. Do not be afraid of the words that you have heard. I'm going to put a spirit in them. And they're going to hear a rumor and return to his own land and make him fall by the sword in his own land. How does God handle this? He doesn't handle it by meeting his force with force. Oh, God is is subtle in this one. God basically kind of flies under man's radar. Enters into his spirit, changes his mood, his thoughts. I love this. God sends him a word, a rumor. I think that's hilarious. God sends him a rumor a whisper that makes him go ballistic. Mr. Big Shot picks up and goes home and is killed in his own place of safety because of a rumor. It's it's amazing. The the people of Judah don't go out and and destroy the Assyrians by force and, and anything like that. God does it for them with a spiritual, irresistible strategy of a word spoken as a rumor. And that's how God dispatches the blasphemer. Basically, he goes, get out of here. That's how powerful God is. What I love about this, everyone, is going back to verse 5. Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? What did them in? Mere words. It's exactly what did them in. The mere words of a rumor did them in. And that's the story. So we could just wrap up and pray and say, okay, try to figure it out. Why is this in the Bible? Why? Sometimes you get done with stories like this and you just go, okay, uh, this is in the permanent public record of the Word of God, and I would like an explanation. Well, the reason is, is because even today, unbelief still sneers at faith in God. God's people still lose their nerve. And God is still there to deliver us when we get real with him. Did you catch that? If no one ever thinks we're crazy for the way we stick our necks out and trusting the promises of God, I would argue that we're not really living by faith. If no one ever asks us to explain the hope that is in us as we 
we'll eventually see in our study in 1 Peter in chapter 3 and verse 15. If no one ever asks to explain the hope that is in us, is our hope any different from their hope? Is our Christianity so audacious? I had to come up with a different word than so cool, so awesome, as I would say. So I had to look it up and become smarter. Is our Christianity so audacious that it requires nothing less than a conversion to enter in? And what I mean by that is this, this reason. I think one reason so many people today are just not even seeing Christianity on the radar screen is that we do not present Christianity as a real alternative to convert to. What we present is a padded, safe, predictable worldliness with an occasional stop-off at church. We think it's God's job to ensure an undisturbed routine. We're weak. But to get fresh courage, we don't have to look inside ourselves and ask, how much faith do I have? We need to look at God and ask, what new step of audacious obedience do you want me to have right now? How can my life today be a statement to my generation that you are not just a reliable Savior, as you promised, you are the Savior, as you promised? When we think in that way, you will find new courage. Because, see, a passage like this really will raise searching questions. For example, do our Christian leaders today at church really make decisions by a bold faith? In our, in our homes, do we raise our children to live with boldness? In Christ. Personally, when was the last time you made a major decision that was so clearly of God and so clearly not of yourself that your conclusion actually surprised you? Are we shocking anyone by our faith in Christ? I think if God were to show us in one instant the full meaning of living by faith, we might all gasp and say, uh, no one can live that way. Not in this world. And that's why he keeps throwing us into upheaval. He wants us to experience what it's like for him to come through when he is the only thing that will suffice and what is directly and immediately of God. He is the only one that can provide the power, the strength, the courage, the wisdom. He wants us to be the living proof that he is real to this world. And whatever the challenge is that's in front of you today that only God can answer in him and him alone, that's a gift from God. He wants you to see his deliverance for his glory. Could you imagine Hezekiah, after all of that, going, 
they ran off because of a rumor? That's amazing. That's amazing. And Hezekiah had to realize the drama that he was a part of. The acting out of faith that he was a part of. He had to be amazed how God was in this crisis that they were in. And only God and God alone could answer that. And maybe, just maybe today, you haven't been trusting him like you're supposed to be. Maybe you feel deeply disappointed in yourself and and tired of the life that you're living. Maybe you've squandered years of opportunity. How, How do I get going again? The Bible says that God has made Christ Jesus our wisdom. He is our righteousness. He is our sanctification. He is our redemption. He is enough for everything that we actually need. And we begin by trusting him to forgive us even in the lost opportunities. Because that's what Hezekiah did. Would you agree that he had a lot of opportunities to follow God? before he had got to that point. But it doesn't matter yesterday. What matters is today. And Hezekiah, on that day, trusted God. And on that day, God said, I'm enough. I will always be enough even with all of the lost opportunities you had, Hezekiah, I am still enough today. Start there. Do you remember one of the words that I said was in there seven times today? Started with the letter T. Trust. Start, start today. Trust him because he is your, the other word seven times, deliverer. Trust him because he is your deliverer. Trust him now in Christ today. I don't know where, but I know whom. Lord, we thank you for this day. 